Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit RightRug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. PM Mood, my new free podcast that gives you, the listeners, conversations you've always wanted with your favorite social influencers, authors, artists, activists, thought leaders, celebrities, and more. This is the No Talking Points and No Bullshit podcast that takes you behind the curtain, off the red carpet, and to the front lines of progress with changemakers and innovators that are doing the work to shift our culture and expand our social impact. I am so excited that the first episode of PM Mood is with my dear friend and social justice warrior, Rashad Robinson, who is the president of Color of Change, the largest online civil rights organization in the country that is literally doing the work and retelling of black stories that show our full and complete humanity in Hollywood that is fighting racialized policies on the ground that are trying to get our voting rights back. There is so much work that Color of Change has been doing, and Rashad Robinson has been doing it for decades, but for almost a decade at Color of Change. So I'm so excited to welcome Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, to PM Mood for our inaugural episode Talking about how you utilize your platform to increase social impact. Rashad, you have been at the helm of Color of Change for how long at this point? Because I feel like you have turned this organization into an incredible powerhouse doing so many things. We're going to specifically talk about telling black stories in Hollywood. But how long has it been? And does it feel like you've been there 100 years or just five well, I couldn't possibly be 100 <laughs> years considering how young I am. But um, <laughs> it was eight years in May that I started A Color of Change in 2011 and really have had the privilege to watch this organization grow and to be inside of so many amazing moments, cultural and political, and really have the opportunity to give everyday people a way to make their voices heard, to mm-hmm. find the opportunities to win 
in moments where we didn't think winning was possible to chip away at so many of the barriers that stand in the way of true progress. So as one of your friends, I will be very honest that when Rashad said that he was going to Color of Change, I said to him, I was like, I, you know, I just I feel like that's not the right move because you know, racism, like black people, like we've arrived. We have a black president. You know, we have all of these good things that are going on. Lo and behold, did I know that the fucking bottom was going to fall out like some, <laughs> some, like, like I think six months later. But you had had been at GLAD and working on advancing LGBTQ issues and equality. And that is how I had worked myself into media was talking about marriage equality and LGBTQ equality. So when you were making this transition to an online African-American civil rights organization working on uplifting the black community, I was like, oh, but there's we we're on another frontier. Like there's this other group and we're we live at the intersection of these identities and lo and behold, I had no idea how far back, <laughs> how far back times would be rolled back. But you knew. Yeah. So what compelled you, do you think, at that time to recognize that this was the place that you needed to go? That unlike my very naive sitting and drinking champagne with the Obamas in the White House, feeling like we had arrived, that we hadn't yet. You know, it's funny you say, first of all, thank you for saying that because a lot of people— a number of people said had all sorts of emails been yeah. like, I don't understand. Oh, no, I called you. What you're doing, like, you are glad you have this, yeah. like, perch. Mm-hmm. Why would you leave this? So here's what happened for me. I remember a couple of moments that really sort of animated the decision that I made about what would it mean to make this decision? What would it mean to more squarely work in racial justice? First is I've always been Mm -hmm. working on racial justice, even while I was at GLAAD. I believe that racial justice is one of the clearest force multipliers for change. In fact, I believe that racial and gender justice are the clearest forces to undo the norms and the structures that far too often have held back progress because of a lack of gender justice and a lack of racial justice Mm -hmm. that create those circumstances. So I came up doing racial justice work, and it's always been clear. And even at GLAAD, while I was the head of programs and overseeing all the programmatic work, I worked hard at times to really center racial justice mm-hmm. in that work with an, this idea. And there's this idea of the curb effect. Angela Glover Blackwell talks about mm-hmm. the curb effect. It's this theory that when they put curbs on sidewalks, they put the first one back, I believe, in the late 60s, early 70s in Berkeley. And it was a big win for the disability rights community. But that curve in there actually helped a whole lot of other people as well. It was a force multiplier for people being going to get packages around, for people, mm. for elderly people. Mm-hmm. being able to move. How we center the most marginalized people and then work up from there helps to rise all boats. But on a more personal note, which I think is really what drives me in this work, was that my niece was born, right? Mm-hmm. And I was seeing stuff on TV that if it was gay, we would have stopped it, but it was black. And I remember writing long emails to the heads of Color of Change because I just saw some of the work they were doing in the media space and felt like they might have the best opportunity to take it on. And I would send these emails like, this is how you should take this on. This is how you should take that on. I remember clearly being up in Vermont where my brother and sister-in-law and niece and nephews live and babysitting my niece and watching this episode of So You Think You Can Dance. Okay. And one of the judges came after hard this 
couple, this gay male couple that was like dancing and he said all horrible things. I was watching it. I didn't normally didn't watch that, but I was like in Vermont and there was not much else to do. <laughs> you were like, I'm and not so I'm, like, watching, watching the, the news. show. And I was like, uh oh. And I started texting my team at Glad. And by the end of the next day, we had them apologizing and mm. I was like in a car to Albany to tape a segment for Access Hollywood on why it was wrong. And I remember just thinking about all throughout the day I had been seeing these horrible negative images of black people. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, who is doing that around this? And so, like, to the extent that the work has always been part of how I think about making justice and making change, but also for anyone who does this work, if you don't have a sense of purpose that is rooted in a personal story, mm. that is rooted in a vision for the future that is more than anything in a textbook, then you actually won't last in it because you deal with way more losses day in and day out than you deal with wins. And in speaking about your personal story and what has guided you, which has been a sense of justice and fighting for justice wherever you are, if you see injustice, if you see inequality, it is something that you have consistently, all the years that I have known you, which is what feels like a thousand in a good way, it has been the core value of yours. Talk to me about now, when you are seeing these images on television, on streaming, in the movies about black people, right? What we constantly see and what has become a normalized term is trauma porn, right? That as it pertains to the telling of our stories and our lives, that it is steeped in the traumatic, that we are used to seeing black people cry, we're used to seeing black bodies torn apart, whether it be by bullets or by beatings. And Color of Change has been on the forefront of cases and issues and bringing light to where our money is going, like you did with Alec, and making sure that we all know that when we are paying certain companies, that what they're using our money to do. And you have a phrase that you say, right, which is what? About using our money. Um, can't come for our money by day and take away our vote by night. Or can't come for our money by day and make us unsafe by night. And it's the same thing to me that pertains to entertainment, right? Mm -hmm. When you're looking at things that we find entertaining. And there was something that James Baldwin had said at one time, which is that as black people, we have always been forced to look at white people, white people's stories, white people's lives. And they've never, ever had to look at us. And even still now, you know, just recently... You've had Gabrielle Union's story come out, actress Gabrielle Union, who, you know, by all cases was one of the most likable judges on a America's Got Talent, was told in 2019 that her hairstyles are too black or she's showing up too black. We still get excited when we saw, you know, Annalise Keating on How to Get Away with Murder, Viola Davis's character, in a head wrap. Because we've never seen a black woman in mainstream media on national television in a head wrap what black women do to protect their hair at nighttime. So talk to us about this kind of this move, this pivot or expansion, I should say, that Color of Change has made into the telling of black stories and why that's so important and why that is also connected to your niece and nephews so that they can see reflections of themselves. Yeah, and so our Tell Black Stories project and campaign is an extension of our Hollywood work and is a way for us to really situate the telling of holistic and authentic portrayals as a means to create a more human 
and less hostile world. I believe that if we create a more human and less hostile world for black people, we create a more human and less hostile world for all of us. And, you know, one of the things about this work is that it's situated into a number of sort of categories. One is the work to move our stories and stop the kind of harmful portrayals. And I want to be really clear about this. This is not about a respectability politics, Mm -hmm. right? I'm not looking for just positive stories. We're looking for accurate and full portrayals. I think of the story of Oscar Grant and just the power of that story, right? Oscar Grant was not someone without flaws, but he was a human being and he had a full portrayal. And we need these full portrayals that build the type of connection, that build authentic connections. So it's about that campaigning. And so we run campaigns to stop stuff. We run campaigns to get stuff on the air. Then we do a lot of work behind the scenes in Hollywood, inside of writers' rooms, working and bringing real people inside of those writers' rooms, pushing the industry to tell better stories. Mm -hmm. We also do a whole set of reports and advocacy to help undergird that. And so we did a report with UCLA on the diversity of writers' rooms and then tracked back that diversity to the actual content on the air and found out a whole lot of really powerful information, everything from out of the 237 shows that we looked at, well over 60% didn't have one black writer in the writers' room. Wow. Out of the crime procedures that we looked at in that study, Mm -hmm. only one of those crime procedures had more than one black writer in the writers' room when all of those shows were set in urban areas and telling a story of crime and justice in inner cities, but have no black writers in those writers' rooms. And so we worked with UCLA on that report and pushed it out and then did a lot of then advocacy work around pushing around the structural barriers, right, to hiring, retention, elevation, power, and all those things inside the industry, right? Industries will oftentimes tell us, right, and we hear this in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, like, oh, maybe we need a mentorship program. And, or well, maybe people we constantly need talk about needing a pipeline. pipeline. And I'm like, well, all sure, but also let's not start off by fixing the people who are oppressed. Let's start off by fixing the systems that are oppressing people. Mm. And that is like part of one of the things that we constantly see in all this is like we have these narratives that inequality, that injustice is sort of like a car accident, right? It just sort of happened, right? And when we think of inequality as unfortunate, we end up with charitable solutions to structural problems. Mm -hmm. So, like, if there's lack of diversity, then it's like, let's help people get into the writer's rooms instead of figuring out why we have a system that has prevented and created barriers for people's full participation on stories that are actually about their lives, right? But when we think of inequality as unfortunate, Rather than unjust, we send water bottles to Flint instead of cleaning up the pipes. We um, do inner city mentorship days instead of actually changing public education. We stop at reentry instead of ending mass incarceration. Because if we fundamentally believe that some people are artificially on the bottom and some people are artificially on the top, then we actually have to change the structures. Otherwise, we have to believe that some people are on the bottom because, because they, they deserve be- because to be there they belong to and be some there. people are on the top because they deserve. Mm-hmm. There's actually like 
kind of no in-between. I know we want to sometimes make there to be an in-between, but poverty, it's a manufactured Mm -hmm. condition. It's a condition that many people are working to keep in place because they benefit. And so these reports allow us to have sort of structure and rigor. We have a report coming out late in January that's going to be looking at the crime procedures on TV. We work with USC Norman Lear School to look at all of the crime procedures on TV and the representation of race on those shows and the representation of crime. And then making a bunch of structural demands. And right. And so one of the things a lot of folks have done in Hollywood is make a lot of demands around diversity, right? We need more diverse representation. And this is why it's so important that we have strategic interventions around racism, because we sort of won some of the diversity battles on the screens, particularly the crime procedures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They have diversified those shows yeah. in many Medical amazing ways. Medical examiners, the cops, all everyone. The, yeah. In fact, one thing I always like to joke about is there's way more black judges on those shows than exist in the real world. If you ever watch those shows, <laughs> every show has like a black judge, and there's like black judges everywhere, right? If only. And I'm like, yeah, if only. They're oftentimes elderly, stately black women who are the judges. But if the writer's room are overwhelmingly white, And they are sending justice through the mouths of elderly, stately black people who make the audience believe that you can have a crime at the beginning of the show and you solve for it by the end of the show. And nobody got older, no years (laughs) passed by, that we have all of these trials when, in fact, we don't actually have a lot of trials. Upwards of 90% of cases get plead out in the beginning. Mm-hmm. People are forced into pleas because of lack of money, bail, a whole set of things. None of that is shown on TV. A, a medical show like Grey's Anatomy or any of the medical shows shows all sorts of innovations in medicine. A cancer treatment comes out one year. The next year, you see a new cancer experiment happening right. on the show. You can't do that in a 45-minute episode and, of Law and & Order. And they don't do it on those shows. And so we're going to really be pushing at those shows. And I share this because, right, it's a strategic intervention to recognizing, right, if we want to change the criminal justice system, there are a set of written rules that we have to change, right? Policy and practice around bail reform, sentencing. America has 3% of the world's population and 25% of the world's incarcerated population, mm. right? And mm-hmm. so, like, the fact of the matter is, is, right, we do have written rules to change. But we also have unwritten rules and cultural rules to change because if we only change the written rules, first of all, it's incredibly hard to change the written rules without changing people's public opinion. Is that why? Because I have to ask you this, because, you know, all of it, right, is about the perception of the problem, right? When you look at racist systems and structures, it is always that the problem is black people. If you were to just you know, have your mom and dad in the home, if you were to just as oh, I don't know, Pete Buttigieg said in a 2011 video that there's no value in education because you just don't have any role models in underserved communities and communities of color. That there's this perception, like you were saying, that if you are on the bottom, it's because you need to be there, because you are lazy, because you are undereducated, or you devalue these different things. But the reality is, is that that's not the case. And while I don't, and I started off by saying, there is a fine line to me between trauma porn, right? This Mm -hmm. idea that everything about the black existence needs to be steeped in struggle. And then there's the really authentic ways in which you tell those stories of struggle, which I think are incredibly important. The question that I have for you, though, is what we have seen across the board is that acceptance of various marginalized communities 
has been on the decline under the Trump administration, has been on the decline since 2016. Hate crimes have been on the rise. White supremacist organization groups have been on the rise, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so talk to us about then, if you cannot rely on policy changes to be driven by our government, right, then what is the responsibility, do you think, of executives in Hollywood, which are still like we can because I went to Hollywood recently to talk with writers and talk with producers. And one of the things that they say is that, yeah, our writing rooms have become more diverse. These places have become more diverse. But guess what? The people that are greenlighting it, the people that are funding these projects are deciding what's going to get funded and what people are going to see. Or if they decide that the character which you may have written to be a woman who is from Nigeria or whomever, and they decide, hmm, There's not a big enough actress to play that role. Or what about this idea that Julia Roberts was an idea that was floated about Harriet Tubman? Like who has the power to green light is still very much white. So what is the responsibility when we are living in a political climate where what we have been working for, what we have been battling for on the front lines is now being rolled back? What responsibility do these people have with the images and the stories that are being told that help us continue to move the needle forward when our government is not actually doing that and is doing quite the opposite? Yeah, I mean, I think this is all about incentive structures. And and what I mean by this is, is that is why people power and campaigning is so important, because none of these structures are going to change without people forcing them to, without Mm. people standing up and pushing back on it. Every single one of the campaigns that we win at Color of Change, we always get to a point where the folks in power, the decision maker in power, tells us why they can't do something. Mm -hmm. Why the thing we're asking for is a thing that can't be moved Mm -hmm. until we force them to. I mean, I remember very clearly when we came to a set of credit card companies and payment processing companies, and we said, stop processing fees for these white nationalist organizations. And the credit card company said, go talk to the banks. We actually can't do that. That's not our responsibility. And the banks said, go talk to the credit card companies. And we started building out this campaign. And I remember, and they, you know, had their PR people working. I remember uh, really annoying, I was in the back of a cab, interview with a Washington Post reporter. And he was in a very slow way explaining to me Uh-oh. why the, <laughs> why the, why our campaign demanding the credit card companies eliminate processing for these white national organizations was not something they could do. And did I want to comment on that and comment on why we were making these demands on companies that couldn't do the thing? And I said, well, they actually can do it. There's not a law that says they can't. And he mm-hmm. was like, well, they can't. I'm like, no, they don't process his fees for ISIS. So okay. they can. And so, you know, we built out our campaign. We built out the infrastructure. We kept having conversations with these companies. So sure enough, Charlottesville happens. And mm. we're able then, the, the staff goes in over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And, and we turn that campaign on. And we start pushing out. And people who are outraged now, we point them to Hey, so all these folks were marching, and you know how they raise their money for the buses? You know how they are funding their organization? Go to their website. You could put your credit card number in and buy paraphernalia that is like 
gun wow. holsters mm-hmm. that have like SWAT comments about yeah. killing Muslims. They have mm-hmm. T-shirts, and you can use it. All of a sudden, the credit card company started sending us lists of white nationalist organizations that they were eliminating and stopped processing fees for. Imagine We're that. up to 100 white nationalist organizations whose fees have been cut off. White nationalist organizations have called us and wanted to get on the phone to explain to us why they're not white nationalist organizations. <laughs> I actually got, I would on, love one to of, know I actually got on one of those calls Please to just tell us make how sure it, goes. <laughs> it was a surreal and interesting conversation. There's a difference between presence and power. Mm-hmm. Presence is visibility. It's awareness. It's retweets. It's people talking about an issue. It's maybe people being deeply outraged and wanting something to do about it. Power is the ability to change the rules. Mm. The kind of nexus between that is people power and narrative change. Everyday people forcing systems to do things that they otherwise said they couldn't do. And so the only thing that really changed between there was no law that was passed Mm -mm. that said they can't process fees for white nationalist organizations. And and to your point about the government, there would be no law in this moment that would actually There was no even reprimand, right? There was no reprimand. Good people on both sides. Right, good sides. So, like, to the extent that the climate and the landscape changed, and I talk a lot about the founding of Color of Change because it does animate how we think about our work, you know, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, black people were literally on their roofs begging for the government to do something, and mm-hmm. they were left to die. And when they tried yes. to go into stores in order they, to get what they little were, they were resources of, yeah, that they, they, they could were, get. Yeah, they were attacked by the cops, media. And, they were fleeced by corporations, mm-hmm. and they were ignored by their government. Mm-hmm. But people already knew the issues at hand, right? Geographic segregation generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet, the ways in which structural racism undergirds all of those things. Mm -hmm. At the heart of that, though, no one was nervous about disappointing black people. Not one. Government, corporations, and media. And when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, you don't need more presence. You don't need more visibility on the issue. You need more power. And at Color of Change, we are about building power. And so whether that is in the media landscape of building cultural power that forces Hollywood and those that make changes to realize that they've got to do better or else they're going to be held accountable, and also finding ways to reward and hold up and support those that do the right thing, or whether it's in the political space or the corporate space, all of these are terrains that if we are not building the infrastructure to fight and win, we don't actually fundamentally change the way people get to live. And that is at the heart of what we do every day. That is sort of what I wake up when I wake up and like look at like far too many emails or when I think <laughs> about the campaigns that we can't take on because mm-hmm. we may not have the capacity or the energy, I try to think about what are the things that we can do that are force multipliers. That if we pull this lever, we can open up more things for change. Whether that's opportunistic campaigns, like kicking someone off the air that allows you to tell a larger story, or whether that is actually structural campaigns that changes rules and changes structures. All of that is about how do we change the rules because through changing the rules we can actually make people's lives fundamentally better which you have for the past eight years which is just extraordinary and i mean eight years at Mm -hmm. color of change but in your entire existence has been absolutely extraordinary to watch as your friend so 
I like to make a little bit of a transition because oftentimes people ask me how I stop myself from going crazy, right? So on PM Mood, the question that I'm going to ask folks that come on is, what do you do to shift your mood? Everything is so enraging and can get to the point of exhaustion. So I want you to be able to tell folks, you know, they get a little bit of insight into your life, but also maybe want to try something that will help them, you know, equally maintain their consciousness and connection to the work that needs to be done, but also allow them to (laughs) level out in some way to change and shift their mood. So what are some of the things that you do? First of all, I think different people have different constitutions. And so, you know, as a person... I have a team of about 100 people, and various people on my team need different things for self-care, for their own mental health and stability. And so Mm. I want to share this, but I'm also, as a leader of an organization, I've learned over time that I need to make sure that I'm not making my practices other people's practices because they would not be helpful or healthy (laughs) for everyone because I don't sleep a lot. Yes, which which is so odd. He sleeps like four hours a night. And if I did that, you all would not want to listen to me on a regular basis. Yeah, I mean, I I I would sound crazy. I think I went to bed at like 1.30, o'clock in the morning after like I finally got to bed and I was at the gym at 6.45 for my personal training. And I'm, you know, on the air with you, and I think I sound okay. And so, like, all of that, like, to Yeah, me, that wouldn't happen. That would like, not be me. And that's, like, a regular thing for me, to mm-hmm. be, like, to be clear. I'm not personal training every morning, but, like, me running this schedule. So, but I'm a, I'm a happy warrior. I'm in my sweet spot when I'm able to actually do something about the things that I see. Mm-hmm. When I actually see things that outrage me, and I have the ability to make change on it. And so if I wasn't doing what I'm doing right now, I would want to be doing it. And I think about it, like I've talked to like folks that we've worked with who are like professional athletes who train all the time Mm -hmm. because they're doing the thing that they always believe they should be doing. Yeah. That's where I'm at. So that's one. But it's not all like politics and activism Mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. That's what I want to know. I have an amazing amazing group of friends. I know. I'm one of them. They're so amazing. um, Who like... (laughs) I I love to cook, and I find myself to be a very good cook, and my friends love to eat, and they show it's up. It's true. And they, like— We show up with Tupperware. They show up with Tupperware, and so I, I'm, like—I like to cook, especially, like, bigger dinners on the weekends where I can have a lot of people over and cook too much food and force people to eat things or try things and try out new recipes on people. Just, I will just um, put in a plug. My favorite thing that you make is your grilled bread— and homemade tzatziki. If I had one thing to eat for the rest of my life with somebody, that is what I would eat. Yes. I believe it hits every note possible. It's I make delicious. like a, a homemade flat grilled bread with oh. like rosemary and garlic. But and it's like kind of underdone. Yes, it's a little soft in the middle, crispy on the outside. Uh, and then you dip it in the tzatziki and it's, it's yes, so it's, it's, it, it would be on my restaurant menu, but I don't want to. It will be on your restaurant menu at some point. Yes, you will. I believe um, it. But all of that to say, I love beautiful things, and particularly clothes. Um, <laughs> and I like uh, you like well tailored jackets. Yes, and I like and looking. Hats. I like looking at clothes online and not buying them, and sometimes buying them. You know, I enjoy TV, and you know, I comment and I advocate and I push on TV, mm-hmm. and I challenge those behind the scenes. But it helps that I actually watch TV <laughs> and that I like enjoy it, and I'm not critiquing uh, industry. 
and a practice that I have no relationship to and no engagement with. I believe in the power of creativity and creative arts in that medium. And so I really do enjoy it and appreciate it. So, I mean, those are like things that I do that I feel give me like other outlets. But I do have to say that I really do love what I get to do every day. I believe in what I'm doing right now. I believe that we are at our best for only a period of time in That's true. in our lives. And I believe this is the time where I can like lean in and make as much change as possible. And and so I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it all I got right now. I'm going to like do it and and do it as well as I can. Well, I love it. And I adore you, Rashad Robinson, the happy warrior and president of Color of Change. Thank you so much for joining PM Mood. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. And good luck with this podcast. Can't wait to hear all the other guests as well. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to PM Mood. New episodes are up for download free every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more from me, check out my live daily political talk show, Woke AF Daily at DNR Studios. You can subscribe now at www.dnrstudios.com slash woke. Up next week, we will be in conversation with the incomparable Jamel Hill. I can't wait for you guys to hear that conversation. That's it for us here, folks. Keep fighting, keep pushing, and keep doing your part to change the world. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.